Hi, and welcome to Jail Returns, where we will introduce our essential question this week. Why does the Washington state government choose to invest in punishing offenders rather than putting more funding towards rehabilitation? And now to introduce our first source is Alexa. Oh yeah, and I forgot to add, my name is Allie. Thank you for that introduction, Allie. I'm Alexa, and I'll be presenting the first source to you. When looking at mass incarceration, the whole pie, 2020, we can see an outline of the 2.3 million Americans in the criminal justice system. About half a million of them wait for trial because they can't afford bail. Drug offenses still account for the incarceration of almost half a million people, making nonviolent drug convictions a defining factor of our federal prison system. Private prison systems are making multi-billions off of prisoners. Cities and counties are choosing to pour vast amounts of public resources into the processing and punishment of minor offenses, rather than investing in community-driven safety initiatives. We can see defining patterns in our system, as Black Americans make up 40% of the incarcerated population, despite representing only 13% of U.S. residents. Women also find themselves being incarcerated at rising rates which have risen faster than men for decades. Hi, I'm Jenny, and I'll be commenting on the first source with Alexa. Mass incarceration is driven by government policy and spending. The American criminal justice system holds almost 2.3 million people in 1,833 state prisons, 110 federal prisons, 1,772 juvenile correctional facilities, 3,134 local jails, 218 immigration detention facilities, and 80 Indian County jails, as well as in military prisons, civil commitment centers, state psychiatric hospitals, and prisons in the U.S. territories. Around 450,000 people are incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses in the United States. Just over half a million people are in pretrial detention. The U.S. locks up more people per capita in the nation at a rate of 698 per 100,000 residents. White people are underrepresented in the incarcerated population, as black Americans make up 40% of the incarcerated population despite representing 13% of U.S. residents. Federal prison holds 226,000 inmates, making 78,000 convicted of a drug crime. 74% of people held in jails are not convicted of any crime. Out of all 631,000 local jail inmates, only 37,000 were convicted of a drug crime, while 120,000 aren't convicted at all. Drug offenses still account for the incarceration of almost half a million people, and nonviolent drug convictions remain a defining feature of the federal prison system. Police still make over 1 million drug possession arrests per year, many of which lead to prison sentences. Drug arrests continue to give residents of over-policed communities criminal records, hurting their employment prospects and increasing 
increasing the likelihood of longer sentences for any future offenses. One in five incarcerated people are locked up for a drug offense. Six times as many arrests for drug possessions than drug sales. As well as women's state prisons population growing faster than men's. With a rate of 990 in state prisons, 101,000 in local jails, 16,000 in federal prisons and jails, 770 in immigration detention, and 660 in youth. Hi, my name is Tanner. Today we're going to be going through some incarceration trends within Washington State itself. So the total population of jails and prisons in Washington State is 27,158 inmates. The jail population has gone up by 362% since 1970, while the prison population has only gone up by 182% since 1983. Something interesting is that the female population has gone up by 810% in Washington State prisons. The black population makes up only 5% of the total state population, however they represent 11% of the people in jail and 18% of the people in prison. They're incarcerated at a rate of 4.4 times as high as white people, and incarceration rates rose from 7% for black people from 1978 to 2017. White people in Washington state make up 72% of the total population, but only 61% of the jail population. Another interesting facet is that Native Americans make up 2% of the state population, but they make up over 5% of the jail population, and they are the most disproportionately represented in jail. So Tanner, I'm wondering what you think about why Native Americans are so disproportionately represented here. Do you have any uh, ideas of, of why that might be? One of the things that I was thinking about, because it definitely stood out to me, was I remember reading an article on how it's the geographic inaccessibility for Native American reservations that exacerbate a lot of their problems, such as, um, <clears throat> I mean, you've got, you've got generational poverty in the first place. That's definitely a big factor. But it's the fact that reservations are so isolated from big metropolitan areas, big areas of commerce, big areas of industry, that makes getting a good job and escaping the reservation or getting decent education access uh, such a hard thing. So I, it's definitely not the solution to this problem, or it's definitely not the direct answer, but I think that it could definitely play a big part in this. Yeah, I wonder what um, you're talking about, how isolated everything is. I wonder if uh, mass transit to uh, higher metropolitan areas would, would alleviate any uh, options. I've, uh, I remember the article said that the infrastructure was really bad around the area, so that could help. But um, another thing that one has to keep in mind is I wonder how many Native Americans in Washington State are actually on reservations and how many are not in reservations. Yeah, that's true. Another interesting thing is that Latinos are 11% of the state population, but they are 12% of the jail population and 13% of the prison population being slightly overrepresented in prisons. However, the Asian population is over twice as big at 10% of the Washington state population as represented in the jail and prison population, which is respectively uh, 5%, pardon me, 4% of the prison population and 2% of the jail population. 
Overall, incarceration in Washington state is falling in cities, but it is rising in rural areas. On a per capita basis, rural, con- uh, rural counties incarcerate people at a higher rate than in urban counties. Why, why do you think that is? I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this uh, falling in cities and rising in rural areas, and that's, that's a little baffling to me. Do you think that uh, we're coming up with, with better metropolitan area uh, crime reform, or do you think that uh, rural areas are just more uh, the 1980s-style tr- tough on crime? <laughs> that's definitely a thought that came across my head. And I guess I'm a little bit worried about throwing too much conjecture in that, because mm-hmm. I don't want to make any broad assumptions about rural counties, but I figured that um, when things such as the war on drugs and mass incarceration really started kicking off, I'd imagine that that hit cities first, hit cities the hardest given their massive populations. So I would assume that they would be the first to take steps to reform. But again, Mm -hmm. that's just conjecture. I really can't say for sure. Definitely worth delving into more in the future, though. Yeah, perhaps the ripple effect is just now getting into the outlying communities. Yeah. So I believe that you have a source regarding the impact of drugs in Washington state. Would you like to share anything on that? Yeah. So uh, I found this. um, It was actually commissioned by the DOJ. It's a grant. uh, It's called the impact war, the impact of drugs in Washington state. Uh, It's a little older. It's from 2008 or sorry, 2009 when it was actually published, but it has some like some very confusing stats. Um, And by confusing, I just mean they don't make sense on why we would invest the way that we have. Um, So in 2005, $373.9 billion was put into the war on drugs, both state and federally. And then another $93.8 billion provided by private and local funds. So of all that money, less than three cents on every dollar is spent on prevention, treatment, and research. That is a really sobering statistic right there i'm just in awe that it's so low it is it's 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 baffling to me that so much money could be spent um and so little money could be spent on prevention and treatment and research because it just feels like um yeah we're just we're not actually taking care of the problem we're just managing symptoms i'd definitely Um, like to see how that looks in other countries compared to the usa it would be different and i know um yeah, it's it's tricky too with other countries because you don't know um, just all the demographics of everything and also how spread out the United States and even Washington is with its urban communities and rural communities, what that would look like. Um, something else that was interesting, uh, from 1990 to 2007, there was a 625% increase in opioids. Um, like I knew that the opioid epidemic was massive, but I had no idea that it was over sixfold. Um, yeah. Uh, drug deaths in Washington. This is in 1980. This is kind of the beginning of the war on drugs were 3.4 per hundred thousand. And now in 2007, it was 14.8 per hundred thousand. So whatever we're doing, Uh, It's pretty evident, or at least whatever we were doing from 1980 to 2007 uh, was ineffective, um, to say the least, in in saving lives that are affected by drugs. It's interesting because on one hand, it almost seems as though it gives some kind of impetus for the war on drugs. And that, you know, you can see that drug deaths are increasing, therefore, 
But at the same mm-hmm. time, this is all taking place during the war on drugs, and clearly it has not been successful in what it's doing. Just an interesting no. side note there. Yeah, and then here's something that I always, uh, when I was reading, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. So I've always thought that cocaine and heroin and opioids and all these quote-unquote hard drugs were, from from my limited standpoints, and I, until I started digging in, were obviously you know contributing to the highest death rate of people affected by drugs. But in 2007, almost a thousand Washington residents died as a result of drugs. Uh, approximately 700 of them were from alcohol. So 70% of the people that died in 2007 from drugs were from alcohol, which is, I don't think we're doing nearly enough to combat those numbers. That's definitely not what I expected to see. It makes it really, it's just baffling because I mean, there's so many different narratives with all those statistics. It's hard to draw one together. Like on one hand, how much the drug deaths have increased in Washington state, but on the other hand, how much of that, I mean, what is that? Like 70%. Yeah. 70% being from alcohol. Yeah. It's just hard to draw one clear line. Yeah. And I know there's been some stuff done recently with the target zero campaign to try to limit um, drunk driving, but it's just, it's staggering. I had no idea that alcohol played such a large role. Um, And then also I'm just moving on here a little bit, hospital related drug costs. So in 2001, there were 860 million. And by 2007, there were $1.4 billion. It's a 64% increase in six years which is which is crazy and then then if you look down to the breakdown so uh from 2001 to 2007 the same same thing here we're looking at medical costs for the uninsured increased 183 percent while publicly insured only increased 61 percent and privately insured only increased 54.9 percent so it's it's these these health costs are just going through the roof and the disenfranchised without the ability to to procure health insurance are taking almost what is that three and a half times three times as much increase in health care costs i mean i can't imagine that's doing any good just in terms of how you said disenfranchised being so kicked down by that definitely must not do any wonders for the mental state no, and it's just like I mean, they need they need every opportunity to kind of pull themselves out of what they are in, and and with paying three times as much for the same care, it it just makes me think that that there are even less opportunities once you've been in that. It's just kind of a spiral in an effect. Yeah, it definitely brings me back to the points on how many Americans are just one big medical emergency away from going into poverty. Yeah, yeah, and this, I mean. Yeah. And once you're there, then how do you get out? Like, yeah. Um, going back to methamphetamines and, um, law enforcement officials indicated that meth or sorry, 94.3% of law enforcement officials indicated that meth was the biggest threat in the region in spite of the number of meth labs decreasing in every region. Um, and as of 2008, most meth found in Washington state is from Mexico. And so despite, despite meth labs being shut down left and right and a decrease in every region, it still seems to be the biggest threat, according to law enforcement officials. And I, I wonder if this is because of federal funding or I wonder if this is just a, 
officials have a, a lack of change that they want to undergo. Federal funding was definitely the first thing that came to my mind as well. Because, I yeah. mean, there's definitely an incentive to keep this on in terms of the results that you get from it. But, again, I don't want to engage too much in conjecture here. I'm, I'm curious yeah. on what kind of actual effect methamphetamine has in Washington state towns. Yeah. Yep. And then um, one more stat here that I've got. Um, so cocaine in 1990, um, 5.4 per 10,000. Um, and then all the way up to 2007. So uh, 17 years later, it only rose to 7.6 per 10,000. So it's only a 40% increase. So this massive war on drugs that was centered around cocaine and crack only had a 40% increase, which could say that it was an effective targeting of the epidemic, or it could say that it was just blown out of proportion. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us on Jail's Returns. I hope this podcast served to be a great educational insight into the sources that we will be exploring in further detail to investigate our essential question. We are always happy to hear feedback and we welcome any questions for our next episode and further podcasts. I would like to give out a special thanks to Kevin, Jenny, Alexa, and Tanner for their great efforts this week and bringing this podcast together. We hope you'll join us next time. Until then. <laughs>